Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. If you're trying to understand the future of American foreign policy, particularly on the Republican side, and what the shape of world power might look like if either Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or another Republican wins the 2024 election, it would be hard to find someone better to talk to than Elbridge Colby. You may never have heard of him, but he wields a lot of influence in those Washington DC circles. A former advisor to then President Trump, he wrote the president's national defense strategy in 2018. He now runs something called the Marathon Initiative, which is all about preparing a strategy for the United States in this new era of sustained great power competition. He joins us from Washington to give his perspective on America's role in today's world order. Welcome to Unheard, Elbridge. Thanks, Freddie. Wonderful to be with you. So I'd like to start by asking you to help us get a sense of the landscape, because there's a lot of confusion. Um, here in Europe, we hear a lot about how there would be isolationists if the Republicans win in the US. But following your thinking, that's not exactly where things are headed. Um, how do you see the, the, the different groups of ideas on the right in terms of a future American foreign policy? I would say um, the way I think about it is, if you will, you could put things on a spectrum. Um, and on the one extreme, you could have some, you know, uh, what you might call sort of 360 degree maximalism, which is that the United States is sort of, uh, it can be and should be the unipolar power and should impose its will everywhere. And if you wanted to have a representative of that, uh, you could look to someone like John Bolton. And then on the other extreme, uh, you could have, you know, genuine sort of isolationism or, or you know, so, since that, that term has become sort of a canard over, over the, the years, what is a strong version of restraint, which is a, a sort of principled opposition to the employment of American force in the wor world at large. And you could look at somebody like Senator Rand Paul as an example of that. And would I you think put, what, um, would you put Tucker Carlson in that latter camp? I think Tucker, I mean, I wouldn't obviously speak for him. I think Tucker is probably um, further over on, on the restraint camp. I mean, I think he, from what I can tell, he's very concerned about the, um, the, the threat posed by China. But I think he's very suspicious of, you know, not only the employment of American military force and, you know, geopolitical influence abroad, but the whole sort of foreign policy establishment. And I, I share a lot of his skepticism and, and, and sort of, uh, I would say, anger genuinely. Um, but my view is that that there's a lot of room. Could I, sorry to interrupt, uh, Elbridge, just before, because I, I have a, a sense you're going to position yourself somewhere on this spectrum. But just be before you do that, how is it weighted, do you think? Because you, you, Rand Paul is not a very influential or mainstream Republican figure. 
you have the impression that a, a lot of the money, a lot of the kind of mainstream power remains in the more maximalist end. Is that true? Well, it depends on what you mean by mainstream. Uh, to put it very uh, briefly, I would say that you could think of it almost as an iceberg that um, at the top is what you see uh, and is very imposing is the, um, the, the established power of the maximalists. But under the water, um, it's quite different. Uh, and um, I would say voters, Republican voters, are far more, from what we can tell, in the in the direction of the restrained camp than the established leadership in Washington and the kind of primary you know outlets that are associated with you know the Wall Street Journal op-ed page, the National Review, these kinds of things. Although there is there is evolution, so I would say there's a plasticity, um, but I I think of it as a kind of a Indian summer. Or sort of, I mean, frankly, if you look at a lot of the exponents, they're they're actually very old. I mean, they're literally from another generation. If you look at the people who are younger and who are clearly more attuned to the future of the Republican Party, there's a lot more plasticity and flexibility. And I mean, of course, you mentioned Tucker. He's you know by far the most influential figure I think among you know conservatives in terms of an outside uh, uh, force. Um, doesn't necessarily reflect. I mean, he's a, he's a, you know he has a talk show program. So it's it's not a he's not an elected politician, but I think that is that is not the, the notion of a mainstream is I, I think itself, and I don't want to pick your words, but but I think that frame is actually going to lead you a little bit astray because the the way I think about it is there's a lot of water moving under the surface of the ice if we extend the metaphor a little bit. But I guess if we if we were to take a survey of of senators and elected representatives, maybe heads of think tanks, major donors, those kind of figures. Would you still find most of them towards that more maximalist end? Do you think? Exactly. So you could think of the the, the senior elected representatives, newer members who have been elected either in the House and in the Senate as well. Younger members of Congress and governors are going to be in a different position. Um, but yes, and and certainly the a lot of the money is more towards that perspective and the the quote unquote established institutions. But you can see. Um, you know, not only former President Trump, but uh, you know, Governor DeSantis has gone after the old guard establishment. I think there's obviously genuine conviction there, but there's also a sense that there's a real sense among Republican voters that that old guard establishment has not served them well, and I think rightly. And you mentioned money. I mean, we might as well mention that since since you did, and a lot of our viewers will will be skeptical about the influence of big business, the military establishment. You know that presumably helps prop up the old guard in some way, that there are powerful business interests that prefer a slightly more warmongery, expansionist America. I actually have a little bit, I think defense industry tends to be kind of status quo. I mean, it's a highly regulated in industry. It's very close to the government. I'm not saying it's a benign influence, but I don't think it's a primary driver in and of itself. I think it's more what you have is is a reflection of the old Guard Republican Party, which was, you know, uh, primarily, you know, very wealthy individuals, um, large established business institutions, the Chamber of Commerce, for instance, that was a huge part of the Republican Party, not necessarily the voters, but the power, the money really came from there. And of course, money is very important in American politics. To give you an example of how that's changed, Speaker Kevin McCarthy will not meet or in the Republican Party in the House will not meet with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Right. So, so what's happening is that there's a shift away. I mean, Governor DeSantis's, I think, laudable, uh, you know, approach to say Disney uh, that reflects, you know, but other governors, governors in Georgia, for instance, have also pushed back against big business. So you've seen more of an evolution on the domestic side 
foreign policy tends to be kind of more of an elite, if you will. I mean that in the sort of you know non-judgmental sense, enterprise. So I think it's actually a lagging indicator. But as you move towards this new generation, you are going. I think you are definitely going to see uh, change. And so that old generation, just to finish off on that, I guess they are. You mentioned they are literally older. So so they were they came of age and were at the height of power during what. Francis Fukuyama called the end of history, that unipolar moment. And as far as they're concerned, that's how the world should stay. Exactly. I mean, the way I think about it, to put it very kind of, um, you know, put a point on it, is I think a lot of these people who are 80 years old or something, they still they think the Chinese are still riding around on bicycles and mouse suits. And that's just not the way it is. So it's, they're not really cold warriors. They're, they're, their real mindset is exactly as you put it, at the unipolar moment of the 1990s and the 2000s. I mean, somebody who's, you know, some of them have served in the Cold War, but that was a very, very long time ago. Really, what we're talking about is 1999, Kosovo, Iraq, these kind of, this mindset. Okay, so you've given us a bit of a background there, the, the, the landscape. Now, where do you stand on this? You're neither a full isolationist nor a full maximalist. What's your vision for an American strategy? Well, I mean, what I, my, my perspective is that I think the right sort of equilibrium for you know, uh, I think for America, but certainly for a sort of right of center uh, political movement is to look at what is in the American people's concrete and interest. I don't, I don't say that in a pinched or sort of uh, way in which I'm, you know, trying to decrement others, but really looking at it in the sense of, you know, what is actually in the American people's interest. And I think this, and, and that, and, and, and a willingness to reassess some of the old shibboleths or the old hymnal in, 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 a, in an analogous way to how, if you look at, at Republicans rethinking economic policy, saying, well, you know, the old religion of, you know, neoclassical economics and Milton Friedman, that hasn't worked for the people that, you know, we're supposed to serve, you know, regular Americans. And if you look at the voting block of the Republican Party, I mean, not to say that foreign policy should only serve them, but, you know, is working in middle class Americans. Um, our foreign policy, I don't think, has served them. I mean, we've had this maximalist foreign policy that I would say is, has proved disastrous. I mean, and I can go into it, but it has not served their interests. But by the same token- I mean, They have served, literally. They've literally served. They've served yeah. in for the foreign policy, but the foreign policy may not have served them back. Ex that's exact, And that's something that's very important is that, I mean, and this is relevant, I, I would say, in the Ukraine context, is Americans are really tired of the forever wars. And, you know, particularly, I mean, the, 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 the sort of example I like to use, if you watch Fox News, uh, over the course of the day, and it's actually, I mean, Fox News is sort of unjustly uh, characterized. There's a lot of diversity of opinion across Fox News. It's very interesting if you want to understand this debate um, between, you know, say the daytime features versus, say, you know, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, et cetera. Um, but one, I would say the, certainly the ad that leaves the most impressions, maybe not the most common, is one that's for wounded warriors and basically people who were you know, horribly wounded during Iraq or Afghanistan or were killed in 9-11, uh, their widows, or et cetera. That is the sort of a lot of the mindset of, of Republican voters. And I think so there's a real distrust and discontent about, you know, that foreign policy establishment. That's, I mean, literally often the same people making the same arguments who got us into Iraq and the long war in Afghanistan and so forth. So, I mean, what, what I'm saying is let's go back to basics. Let's be unashamed in saying um, what's in Americans' interests. Again, not, not looking to beat up on other people. Let's talk, Turkey, about what that actually means in the real world. So obviously Ukraine is the main topic at the moment. We'll come to China in a sec. Which is but, the problem, exactly. Um, right. <laughs> where do you stand on that? Do you, do you think America is being too committed to 
the defense of Ukraine. Do you want to see uh, less of this escalatory pressure? Do you, do you think they've gone too far already? What's your position? Well, my position is that the way you framed it is exactly the problem, which is that we should be starting with China. And, that, and it's very revealing because I think that is how a lot of not only the, the Biden administration, but many Republicans of that of that sort of above the waterline iceberg uh, agree with you. And I think that that is the problem because China is clearly by far the most significant challenge to the, the, the concrete regular American interest that I'm that I'm talking about. I mean, it's 10 times the size of, of, of Russia, far more formidable. Uh, you know, economically, but now also militarily, et cetera. So my, the, the way I look at Ukraine is not, in a sense, uh, sort of in a vacuum or separate from China, but precisely through the lens of China and through the lens of the recognition that I think compared to the scale of the challenge posed by China, we are neglecting it. Now we have become, I mean, you mentioned the defense strategy that I worked on uh, and there've been a lot of other efforts. We have become more att attuned to China but we're not, we're not sort of, it's not a self-referential exercise. It's more like a business. If you're GM in the 1970s and you're changing to adapt to Toyota, but you don't do enough, you're gonna go out of business or IBM vis-a-vis -vis Microsoft or pick, pick your example. So that's how, how I look at it. In that context, I would say, yes, we are focusing way too much on Ukraine. I'm not in favor of just simply cutting the Ukrainians off. I think what Russia did is an, and is doing is evil. That's not the issue. But if our foreign policy is about Americans' concrete interests, then we're doing too much. We've already spent over $100 billion. We've sent uh, equipment, which is not easily replaceable, which is relevant to the, to the fight, potential fight over Taiwan. And certainly the implications as it reverberates through our defense industrial base is very relevant. And this stuff sounds arcane and picayune, but I think we're seeing that it's not actually, that, that you know, for want of a shoe, the kingdom can be lost. And we're, why are we taking risk on the most significant challenge to the U.S. position in the world and our interests in the world I mean, in 150 years, really. I mean, we were a much larger economy than the Soviet Union. We alone were larger than the three axis powers, let alone with the British Empire and the Soviet Union. So that's the right way to look at this. Okay, so let me just stick with Ukraine for a second, though. Given what you've said, and we understand that you're, you think the, the main interest needs to be eastward, not on uh, Ukraine, but what does that mean practically for what you would, if you were senior advisor to the president right now, what would you tell him to do? Well, I would say um, I don't want to talk about Ukraine right now. I want we, we're going to talk about Taiwan and China and Asia first. And once we fix that problem to a, a satisfactory degree, not 51 percent satisfactory, but 75, 80 percent satisfactory, then we'll spend time and political capital and resources on on uh, Ukraine. I think, in effect, what that means is that um, we put a lot more, uh, I would say, both pressure and encouragement on or to Europe to step up and take the primary role. Why is the United States providing the vast majority of military and financial support to Ukraine? I mean, that doesn't, certainly in the military context, but I believe also in the civilian area, that makes no sense. I mean, Europe is a vastly larger economic area uh, than Russia. It has latent, uh, enormous military advantages vis-a-vis -vis Russia. I mean, a lot of people have been celebrating US policy as saying, oh, American leadership's back and all this kind of stuff. I actually think this is bad. This is a failure because if anything, it's suffocated uh, any effort by Europeans to to potentially stand up and say we're gonna we're gonna take leading responsibility. So that would be, I mean, my basic attitude would be, we the Americans need to focus on China. We're not just gonna cut the Ukrainians off, but we get we really are gonna gonna get the Europeans to do what you know we've been trying to get the Europeans to do since Dwight Eisenhower. Let's just dig into that for one second because you have had European countries stepping up. I mean, Germany famously has torn up its pretty much neutral position since well, the Second no, World Germans War. Well, no, Germans haven't, sorry. But they, well, just they, the yeah. well they, are, they, are, they are engaging, <laughs> they are committing to vast amounts of increased expenditure on, on arms. 
This is all very dramatic stuff for a country that, if you remember back to the Iraq war, was just totally not interested in and was against it. Um, that's not enough, I guess. And I, I, the follow-up question must be, even if they were committing as much as you want, it's going to take however many years or even decades for them to get the kind of military that you would need or we would need to be satisfied that it could resist Russia. And therefore, it's a sort of theoretical question in a way. You, you need American power there anyway, don't you? Well, um, let's let's get to the nub of the matter, um, which is we don't we don't have time because it's a, the assessment of the U.S. intelligence community that Xi Jinping has ordered the PLA to be ready for an attack on Taiwan by 20, successful attack on Taiwan by 2027. It's not a prediction, but I mean that's about as much warning as you can expect in the tough world of international politics. Um, so we don't have time. I mean that's four years away in defense planning terms. That's yesterday. That we actually have very limited things that we can do. So the question is um, I, a couple things. Um, you know, Germans have deconstructed their military, not as a result of World War II, but as a result of the end of history and the peace dividend. I mean, they had a very large and impressive military when they were, the Federal Republic was seeking to defend itself against the Soviets and the Eastern Bloc. Um, and this has been a matter of policy, particularly under former Chancellor Merkel, who I think her legacy will be, uh, you know, really ashes in, in, in the mouth, if you will, um, over time in many ways, including obviously the economic engagement also with China and, and Russia. But um, this is a matter of will. The question is, can, can Germany do it? They're not stepping up. They haven't spent really like apparently almost a euro on, uh, you know, actually uh, sending it out the door. They're going to be way below 2% again this year. The country that, that deserves applause in this respect is Poland, which is committed to almost 5% uh, and is actually putting its money where its mouth is. The question is, What okay, about the UK, can I just say? I mean, UK, we, we don't, yeah, we don't have a lot UK's, going on anymore in the military department. Well, I mean, the UK has, has uh, I give it a lot of credit for, for its ambition, its level of, I mean, under the former prime minister, I think Johnson, he almost committed to, I think it was 3%. Um, I think that figure has gotten knocked down over time, I mean, I wrote a piece in, in the Telegraph a couple of weeks ago. I mean, my view is I think it's it's great that Britain is more engaged on the continent because, you know, precisely because we are going to have to shift to Asia and the UK just has very limited ability to project serious military power. I don't think this tilt to the Pacific makes a lot of sense from a military planning point of view. It's largely symbolic. But let me let me the key point here is who's going to bear the risk? You said Europe needs military power. Well, from our point of view, if we're looking at it from a kind of self-interested, enlightened self-interest point of view, um, invented in the United Kingdom, um, then we're going to say we can't get China and Asia wrong. If China takes over Asia, you know, sort of in a sort of hegemonic situation, which I think is its goal, um, our interests are going to suffer far more than they would suffer if, you know, whatever happens with Russia and Europe, because Asia's, you know, much, much larger economic area than Europe. Uh, China's much, much larger and more formidable power than, than uh, Russia is. So the question is, who's going to bear the cost? If, if Europe presents, the, the uh, a few, in my view, a future administration with the choice, well, we, you know, we just can't do it. It's going to take us too much time. Then we say, I'm sorry, you have to bear the, 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 the consequence of that, response, of, that, of that decision and that inability. And if you want to change that, we'll help you. But we, are not, we, the American people, are not going to allow China to take over Asia because you won't take the steps needed to be able to defend yourself. And that's where the, I think this administration is actually being... Um, is and this is the point I made it unheard last year is actually not helping Europeans by providing a false sense of assurance about what the United States can and will offer in the future. I think we just need to be kind of bold about what is that, what that would actually mean in the Ukrainian context because you say yeah you know if there are resources left over from adequately provisioning a China strategy then we could think about helping out in Europe but 
from everything you're saying, there won't be. Um, so basically, that does mean pulling out of the theater in Ukraine and leaving it to the Europeans. I mean, the UK sent 14 tanks, and I think it was a very substantial you know, percentage of our available fully functioning tanks. We haven't got a lot to send. Uh, you know, yes, Poland has some things going on, but what that practically means is, is uh, however you think of it, failure, surrender, peace. It, it means that attempting to keep back the Russian line in Ukraine or even push it further east yeah, is a sort of is a dead project in that world. I don't think that's true. I mean, I look, I, my point in, in the word before means in a prioritization. Obviously, you can do things at the same time. The point is, is that the political level would say we need to make sure that every even on the margin is relevant to um, uh, that is that is it is even remotely needed for a Taiwan fight is allocated that the resources go there. I mean, we gave a bunch of Abrams tanks. It is pretty hard to imagine Abrams tanks being useful in a fight with 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 China. F-16s, you know, I, it's hard to. I mean, we're going F-35s are going to have trouble uh, against the uh, the Chinese. So that's one where you know, for instance, I don't. I mean, I don't see why we would we couldn't give F-16s uh, uh, potentially to the to the Ukrainians. Um, but I think it would it would it would definitely have an impact. But also the Russians are having real trouble. I mean, they're not 10 feet tall, right? This is not the Red Army of 1945. So the notion that they're just going to roll over the Ukrainians. And then I think the question is, hey, you don't have to accept that. I mean, Europe, I mean, you're a huge economic area. You know, you, you can translate this if you want to. But the problem is, and this is where your, your characterization of Germany is so telling, is they're not doing that. They're not stepping up. And that's the, that's the problem is there, obviously there needs to be a greater sense of urgency. One word neither of us have mentioned is NATO. Uh, that's how this conflict is viewed, both by Europeans and of course by Russia. Um, and the fact is that America is the guarantor of NATO members' security. Um, and we have become used to the idea that is a transatlantic security arrangement um, pretty much guaranteed by the US. Where does this leave NATO in this new world you're painting for us? Should it, does it need rethinking? Is it, is it weaker? Dwight Eisenhower would be, would be rolling over in his, his grave to hear that because that, that is a post-Cold War construct. I mean, during the Cold War, the, the, the relative balance of expenditures on defense was closer to 50%. And that was with a much smaller uh, you know, Western Europe only really in, in the alliance and you know, Greece and Turkey and so forth. Um, but do you so think it that, needs rethinking? Do you think the yeah, whole principle think, of NATO needs rethinking? Yeah, well, I mean, I actually think it, we go, go back to basics, which is that it's not about the United States. And this is where that, that establishment that I was talking about and Europe's interests do align because the establishment in Washington loves to be the global leader. You know, the Madeleine Albright, George W. Bush, you know, we stand taller, we're the indispensable nation. That's great for that old guard Washington establishment. But that is not what serves the people, just to put a fine point on it, who are in or watching the wounded warriors at why are the American people spending three and a half percent of their G? I mean, it's it's really insane when you think about it that Americans in Duluth or Dubuque or whatever Denver are spending three and a half percent and getting blown up potentially, while the Germans, who if anybody have more responsibility to provide for collective defense than anybody by orders of magnitude, spend like one and a half percent. And people say, hey, you talk to Germans, well, Germans don't feel threatened. Well, do you think Americans do? So I think the only way to make this sustainable is to have a more 
balanced approach. I'm not advocating that the United States get out of NATO, to the contrary. What I am saying is- I So should, just I think clear, you're, you're not flexible. advocating renegotiating that treaty or, or security no, no. arrangement. I think the treaty is great, but I, the treaty was not supposed to be. I mean, this is, if you go back and look at the, the ratification back in, I mean, this is a long time ago, 1949 or whatever, it was explicitly not supposed to be. This was not the outcome. In fact, that was the concern. Now, the fact that it's- re- Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That's history is complicated. Well, it's, the, the treaty is an attack on one is an attack on all is the principle, isn't it? And then it means that if Russia invades, for example, Poland or Lithuania, that should be treated by America as an attack on America and therefore would call on all of its you know, defense capabilities. We've never actually thought, right, that, that's not what the, what the treaty says. The treaty says, you know, we will consult our processes, et cetera. And of, of course, we would not treat an attack on a, um, a, NATO, a European ally the same way as an attack on the United States itself. And, and the whole NATO strategy during the, during the, the Cold War was explicitly about not doing that because that was that was why we developed flexible response because there was a difference between an attack on Western Europe and an attack on the American homeland. Obviously, there's a rhetorical level at which that happens, but if we press that, the good the good thing is the Russians are not sufficiently threatening to make that really a huge problem because they can't threaten European NATO given how, the attrition that they've had in Ukraine at least for some time and the difficulties they've had. That is a problem, much more of a problem with China, which is in a sense the new Soviet Union. But I mean, the point about NATO is that it's got this, this post-Cold War, we need to go back to more, something closer to the Cold War model, not the post-Cold War model. The post-Cold War model is the one that you described, which is basically America takes care of everything. That benefited the Washington old guard and benefited a lot of Europeans who could disarm. I mean, the Germans made a rational decision. That doesn't benefit the regular American people. So if it, if it continues in this direction, it risks breaking the entire thing. So I actually think my, 
my approach is actually the one that's designed to sustain NATO over the long term. Let's move focus a bit to China then. That's clearly where you think the focus should be. What makes you so sure or so worried that China is actually planning some kind of attack or absorption in Taiwan? Why, well, you know, I, 10 years ago, this was a, a, a serious debate. I mean, you know, you could think about China's, uh, what, what its potential, how it's blah, 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 blah. I, I just don't think it's much of a debate anymore. Two things above all. One, the, the leader of the most unified Chinese government since Mao Zedong has explicitly given instructions to the party army that he controls to be ready to attack Taiwan by 2027. And of course, the Chinese, we know, pretty much assume that the Americans would come to Taiwan's defense. So that means at war. Now, that's not a prediction, but if you go back to some old British wisdom, and it was re represented in the Crow Memorandum before World War I, usually aggressive powers won't give you a precise date and time about which, on which they're going to move. I, and actually, Xi Jinping has kind of given us that, so we, we can never say we haven't been warned. The other thing is, it ain't just rhetoric. I mean, you look at the military they're building. It is obviously designed to take on not just Taiwan, but the United States, Japan, and, and that it, it's going to be much more than just seizing the island of Taiwan. They're clearly developing a global military. They're building that looks like the American military. Aircraft carriers, space satellites, nuclear-powered submarines. They're basing architecture, Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, Cambodia, Pakistan, Equatorial Guinea, which is on the Atlantic coast of Africa. I mean, this is the future. So, I mean, I don't make any predictions. I have no idea what Xi Jinping is, is going to decide to do. But if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and swims like a duck, maybe it's a duck. And you think that if it did happen, you think it would actually be an attack rather than just a blockade or a, some kind of movement. You actually think they would try and invade that island. I mean, we, we had someone on the show recently who, who was talking about the military difficulties of actually invading Taiwan because of its physical structure. Do you think that's, that's likely, that they would just send boats and planes and just have a full-scale war? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, we can go into it, but I mean, one of the lessons of Ukraine is don't screw around, don't, don't, don't pussyfoot around. Uh, if you're gonna do something, do it right and, and make sure if you're gonna send two missiles, send six. If you thought you're gonna turn somebody, kill them, et cetera. And I think the Chinese are clearly developing the capability to do just that. And yeah, it's, it's difficult to mount and sustain an amphibious and, and air uh, invasion across the strait, 100 miles. It's not impossible. We've been able to do it over the last 75 years. I mean, we, we didn't, haven't mounted, uh, with the exception of the Persian Gulf War, we haven't mounted them, but everybody knew that we could drop Marines pretty much where we wanted in large parts of the world and that nobody could do anything about it. So the, the question is whether, that's the one thing we have in our favor is the difficulties of such an operation. You go back historically, you know, the Wehrmacht was much more powerful than the remaining British army after Dunkirk, but the, the Germans couldn't find a way to get across the, the channel and sustain it. So that's sort of the model to think of. But I, the reason I think they're not gonna do a blockade, which I think they, they could, it's not impossible, and that could succeed, uh, but is the blockade leaves a lot to chance. It leaves a lot in the hands of the Taiwanese. It leaves a lot in the hands of the Americans. It, it seeds the initiative, it seeds the element of surprise. And I just don't think the Chinese are likely to do that. I give them the credit. I think they're at least as smart as we are, probably smarter given our foreign policy the last 25 years. Um, and so I, I would expect them to do the, the most advantageous approach, which would be a sudden, su basically surprise. I mean, it's not necessarily Pearl Harbor, but something that would um, move below the threshold of our response. Although so far we haven't seen that kind of action from modern China. It's actually quite a cautious state. And in a way, you could say they've been flourishing. I mean, as you say, they've grown in power. 
all of the, the trends are in their direction, why risk upsetting everything and maybe plunging the whole world into a kind of major war situation which they may not do so well out of when things are going pretty well for them anyway? Well, let me, I mean, the first one, I, I don't know how the Chinese have gotten this reputation. I mean, they seized Tibet. Uh, they won the civil war by, I mean, the most brutal uh, ways possible and direct defeat of the, of the Kuomintang army. Um, then they seized Tibet uh, through invasion. Um, they, they invaded Hainan Island as part of the, you know, concluding the civil war. Um, and they were planning on invading Formosa before they directly intervened in the Korean War with, you know, huge amounts of troops and fought the Americans and the British basically did a standstill, actually pushed us back from the Yalu. Uh, in modern. I said, I said modern. Well, I mean, I, there hasn't been a huge war, um, you know, between major superpowers, uh, you know, since since the Second World War. They also directly attacked Vietnam in 1979. Uh, their ambitions were to go a lot farther. That was, you know, uh, with both all of these are within living memory. The, the other, I mean, uh, would they not do it? Well, the, the kind of attitude that you're talking about is the attitude of Deng Xiaoping, the hide your capabilities and bide your time, which Xi Jinping has specifically disavowed uh, and has really, um, you know, moved away from that. And why would they do it? Because I think they're going to, I think they actually feel that, they possibly feel that they they need to. If you look at what uh, China's saying, uh, Xi Jinping is saying recently that the United States is trying to strangle China, obviously, you see what he's doing with Vladimir Putin and Russia. They regard us as being, in a sense, a, almost an existential struggle, which is very, very dangerous. But I think what what the reason that they would use military force is to secure their place as the world's top economy uh, and a large geoeconomic sphere, a guaranteed geoeconomic sphere, because they can see what's happening with things like AUKUS and so forth. So they can see th a lot of there's a lot of balancing behavior. Uh, to check China's overweening ambitions. And if they want to get out from under that, uh, they have a strong incentive to use military force and they're preparing to do so. Okay, so let's say you're right. Let's say whether it's 2027 or sooner or later, that attack does happen. What do you want the American response to be? Well, this is a situation where being half pregnant is, is really almost the worst um, approach. So my, my preferred uh, uh, policy uh, which is, of course, designed to deter and avoid a war rather than get into it, is uh, for the United States to act decisively, expeditiously to defeat uh, a Chinese invasion um, and attempt to, to subordinate uh, the island, which is, of course, a lot about anti-ship, anti-air, uh, attacking uh, PLA ground forces that, that land on the island. It's almost certainly gonna, would involve attacks, selective attacks on the Chinese mainland that would be uh, uh, constrained to try to help manage escalation, which would be an uncertain endeavor. Um, so the, the best thing in this kind of situation is to be as, as prepared as humanly possible and not to get close to the, the, the marginal edge of, you know, a conventional fight. Um, and that's what we're not doing right now. Uh, and I think the problem is, is if, if we sort of half bake it, if you will, um, you could get a situation in which the, the Chinese do it and we offer a kind of um, unsatisfactory or, 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 or sort of, uh, uh, you know, unavailing response, which means we're at war with China, but we've lost, basically. And that's the worst outcome. And that's actually going to be worse for Europe, because in that situation, there's going to be a giant sucking sound uh, for every US resource to go to the primary theater. But that, that means, obviously, massively increasing investment in, I guess, military hardware and whatever you think you need. Does it also mean kind of preemptive, slightly threatening activity in the South China Sea? You want to see ships moving there and kind of ostentatiously sending the message to China that you're preparing to defend the island? Is that what you would like to see? No, I'm actually the reverse. I'm in the uh, speak softly and carry a big stick department. I think we've, we're have we peacocking right now. 
uh, and probably with the strength of a peacock. It's mostly for show. Um, if you'll forgive the analogy, I don't know if you remember the movie Rocky Four, but with Dolph Lundgren as the Soviet, you know, boxing, uh, you know, star who was all business and quiet, and then you got Apollo Creed and the American American flag dancing around, and then Dolph Lundgren kills him in the ring. And that's, I fear, the situation that we're heading to. I actually want us to really focus on sharpening that stick, making it a bigger stick, if you will, and doing less in the way of uh, publicity. I, you know, all these people going to the island and making all these statements about Taiwan and the CCP is evil and all this stuff. Sir, I mean, the CCP is evil. Um, I, I sympathize with Taiwan's freedom, but we are in a super, super dangerous situation. And so what I would, I would focus on is hitting the gym. And this is kind of the same context as, you know, in Europe, I'm not picking on Ukraine. It's, you know, there are, we're, we're not anywhere near as disciplined as, as we want. And yes, there's waste in the defense budget. Yes, there's difficulties in resuscitating the defense industrial base. But yeah, that's the world we have to live in, right? We have to make, we, we have to live in the world of now and the, and the resources that we have available. By the way, the American people are not showing a lot of interest in dramatic increases in defense spending. And we're, you know, this is not 1980, a lot of the sort of above the waterline. Isn't that going to be a problem for your policy if the if the American people aren't showing a lot of interest in defense spending and maybe as far as they're concerned Taiwan is a long way away and as you said there's a lot of fatigue with the forever wars even even though you might think it's the best strategy for America the voters may not be with you yeah that's exactly the problem and that's one of the reasons I'm so worried about Ukraine exactly and then people who say we can walk and chew gum no we should be husbanding the voters resolve we should be husbanding and being very careful with their money. I think we can do it. We're already spending almost a trillion dollars on the defense budget. I mean, I think we can do a lot better, but that would involve ruthless, ruthless focus on the problem, which is not what we're doing. And there's a lot of political interests. There's jobs. There's the big business stuff. There's all kinds of log rolling. Yeah. I Well, welcome, you know, welcome to the casino. That's the way life is. But then if we're going to do that, we can't think that, oh, hey, we can fight a proxy war with Russia indefinitely and then also do the same thing. So that's the exactly. I'm I'm acutely conscious of how difficult. I'm I'm not sure the American people will support a defense of Taiwan, and the Taiwanese are not helping the cause by spend. They spend less per capita than the American people do, which is insane. So this is we are really on a knife's edge. And you don't buy the reverse argument, which you also hear a lot, which is that weakness on Ukraine would signal weakness on Taiwan, and that actually showing strength on Ukraine is a way to basically persuade China not to do it. You don't buy that. I, the argument is so um, how do I be charitable. It's so you, you don't have to be charitable. <laughs> okay, I mean it's just such a tendentious argument. It's hard to because it's obviously designed to get us to do. I actually respect there, there's a, there's a current now, particularly more on the left, of people who are Ukraine hawks who are starting to call for detente with China. I actually appreciate that because at least we're seeing a choice. What I find particularly uh, frustrating is as you find this particularly among hawks is who say, well, we're gonna. We're going to do Ukraine and, and it's going to show China. And by the way, we're going to then we're going to pivot. And it's all these sort of triple bank shot. We're going to win the lottery sort of strategies. Look, obviously, China's looking to some extent, but China's main calculation is going to be what's the balance of military forces vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan and how resolute are, are, is the American government and the American people vis-a-vis -vis this specific conflict. And I mean, it's, just, it's the same. I mean, it's telling. It's the same argument that people, defenders of the Vietnam War used that we, oh, if we don't win in the rice paddies in Vietnam, we're not going to win in Europe. Well, Europeans at the time were saying, well, actually, we think this is a waste. We think you're, you're eroding American people's support. And in the wake of Vietnam, you had things like the Mansfield Amendment trying to pull U.S. forces back from Europe. Right. So I actually think we're, we're you know, and you have the Robert Kagans of the world who just constantly harangue the American people to you know, fight the jungle and global liberal hegemony. And people don't, I mean, they're tuned out, right? Of course they're not gonna do that kind of thing. 
right? So what we really need to do is, is be much more careful and respectful and sort of husbanding of, of the American people's resolve. Final question on China before we talk a little bit about the, the politics of it, which is that, is there no worry that by having the kind of strategy you're talking about, you kind of make something inevitable? Um, because by, by, by China will, whether you're making a big show of it or not, will we'll know what's going on. They have decent enough intelligence services. So if there is this huge push towards defending Taiwan, they will be forced to respond in kind. And you almost make that conflict more likely by anticipating it. Is that not a worry? Oh, it's a very serious worry. Um, we, we are now in a situation because of our neglect of Taiwan, where the Chinese clearly want to subordinate Taiwan. That is not the issue. We are not going to catalyze something that they did not already want. I mean, they've been working since the third Taiwan Straits crisis assiduously and very carefully and, and, and kind of ruthlessly uh, to develop a military to do this. By neglecting our defenses there, we've now made it in the realm of the possible. So now we're in the situation, frankly, in Britain faced in, say, the late 1930s, where you're under strength in the primary theater. You know, your choices are to be weak and essentially ensure failure, right? And you might avoid the war, but at the cost of all your important interests, right? Or you can arm, but then you might precipitate at more of an operational tactical level a Chinese response to get out under this. This is a very serious problem and one I take very seriously. I mean, the alternative historical analogy is maybe the First World War, where some historians would say that we would have been better off not having it. It was a kind of worst case for everybody. And we could have avoided it by just accepting accepting German strength in certain areas. I, I think mean, the worst case was what happened. Uh, the second worst case would have been German dominance of Europe, which would have clearly have turned against British interests very, very quickly. The best case, actually, I have a different view. The best case, and it is directly analogous, is that Britain, and I think Britain actually behaved really admirably from a strategic perspective, it's actually a really good example relevant here, is it really reoriented its whole military and strategic policy. I mean, the United, the, the, obviously the historic enmity with France, it settled that issue, it settled the, the enmity with, with Russia, it cut deals with the Japanese, and it cut deals with the Americans who, you know, I mean, for all the special relationship stuff, our primary opponent in the, in the 19th century was of course Great Britain. Britain settled that as well and things like Canada, Venezuela, et cetera, and focused on Germany. The problem, Freddie, is it didn't go far enough, right? And, and in the decisive moment in the, 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 the July crisis, instead of Britain saying clearly, we are committed to the, the alliance with France, it equivocated and hedged. And even more than that, it wasn't merely the statement, but if the British had had the, the military forces already generated and ideally deployed on the continent, as we had, that's the lesson we learned in NATO in, in the Cold War, I think the Germans could have been dissuaded because they said, well, we're not going to be able to defeat the, the Western allies. And anyway, I mean, we can go into the history, but the, the lesson here is actually, no, don't, don't getting 90% of the way there, 85% of the way there is not the same as getting 100% of the way. You have to get 100% of the way there. Let's talk, if we could, about some of the candidates and where they stand. You have a good knowledge, obviously, of Donald Trump, um, as well as, I, I guess, Ron DeSantis. How would you position both of those candidates in these, in foreign policy terms? Where do they fit on the spectrum you've just drawn for us? Well, I mean, I wouldn't want to characterize any of their positions, but I think the, the major thing I would say on this is that both Governor DeSantis and President Trump are, I think, where, you know, both, I would say, strategic reality and uh, the voters are, which is at least far away from that, you know, traditional blob, the, the, the traditional foreign policy establishment. You have other candidates like 
former ambassador and, and governor uh, Nikki Haley, who are clearly running in that in that lane. But I think the two heavyweights uh, in the uh, the election so far um, are are much more in tune both with where the voters are, but I also think a sense of this you know strategic reality. And of course, President Trump, you know, was the first one to not just talk about China, but really do something about it. Governor DeSantis has been very clear on uh, uh, on the primacy of the China threat. Um, and so I think that that's very telling. President Trump's talked about avoiding World War III, and that's what he would give the nation if uh, elected again. Do you think that's true? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think one of the best things you can say, uh, Senator Vance put this very well, one of the great, I think, things you can say about the Trump administration is that it avoided new, you know, kind of forever wars. And I think um, he has a strong, a strong claim on, 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 that, on that basis. Is there a difference between them, do you think, in terms of these foreign policy questions? Position them for us on the scale. Do you see them grouped very closely together? Are they where you are? Um, are they are they are they also skeptical of the Ukraine situation, but pretty much double down on a, on the defense of Taiwan? Or what what do we realistically know about them? Freddie, I'm not going to characterize their positions. You can go ask ask them. What I will say is, if you look at what they've said, both of them, and for instance, in response to Tucker Carlson uh, questionnaire, I think they're both focused on China, from what I can tell, and they're both uh, concerned about uh, overexposure. Um, in the uh, in the Ukraine context, what I will say, my view, and I'm not, you know, I don't speak for any of them or anything like that, but I think that the, the, the foreign policy and the strategy that I'm advocating for is the natural one that a future Republican administration, uh, hopefully one that would win in, in 2024, I really hope uh, personally, um, is going to be the natural equilibrium. And, and 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 this is important because a lot of the the big voices from the the so-called old guard or the establishment of the blob are saying, hey, look at the people in the positions of power, et cetera. But bear this in mind, a lot of the, the people in Congress don't have responsibility. I mean, they're not the executive branch and the way the American system is really set up is the executive is uniquely powerful and responsible for national security. Bear this in mind, the next presidential term is gonna include the year 2027. So if you are the president then, you are gonna really face the issue, am I gonna be the first president to lose a major power war? The United States withdrew from Vietnam, we withdrew from Afghanistan, but we have never lost a major power war. That is gonna be a very sobering bucket of cold water poured on a presidential administration as they transition, or if it's a continuation of this administration or another Democrat, who knows? That is the kind of, so in that context, you say, whoa, <laughs> I really need to be super real, super practical. And that's where I think my approach, because you're not, you know, you can't do the walk and chew gum and we can do everything and blah, blah, blah. But you also say, hey, I can't do the Rand Paul approach because if I do that, China's going to take over Asia. That's clearly going to be bad. So I think where my argument is, is not, you're not necessarily going to see it, you know, catch fire in the U.S. Senate necessarily. But what you are going to see is, I think, a, a future administration saying, man, we're living in a really tough world and we can't afford the old, you know, shibboleth, the old, the old time religion. Do you have any comment on um, what's been going on in recent days and weeks with Donald Trump and this supposed arrest, whether or not he's going to be indicted? I mean, it doesn't his remarks on social media and elsewhere, they, they don't give the atmosphere of the strong, silent husbanding of resources and saying very little, which is what you were hoping for. There are plenty of other people who are more knowledgeable to ask about, about what's going on in that kind of domestic context, but I'll, I'll stick, to my, stick to my knitting, thanks. Would you work for either of them? If, uh, depending on who's successful? Well, look, I'd be honored to work for, I mean, I think the main thing for me is, um, 
um, I, I wouldn't presume, but I think if somebody, I, I think my views are clear. I mean, look, at the end of the day, um, anybody who's working in a presidential administration is a servant of the uh, of the people, but of course of, is working for staff to the, the person who's been elected. That's the whole point. But if somebody wanted to put something like the approach uh, that I'm advocating for, I, I would be you know, honored to work for them. I, if they're not, then I think it's pretty clear I'm probably not the right guy for that, for that approach. So I'm sort of an open book. Elbridge couldn't quite draw you there on the uh, candidates, but thank you so much. You've given us a very clear impression of where you stand and maybe where the future candidate will stand also. Thanks to you. Thanks, Freddie. Elbridge Colby, ladies and gentlemen, that is President Trump's former foreign policy advisor. Um, he wrote the national defense strategy for him in 2018. He is now a big voice in the US in foreign policy circles on the right. And you could see he was keeping his cards pretty clean there. He didn't want to be drawn in to which candidate he preferred, although you can go on his Twitter and, and read for yourself what kind of things he's saying. Clearly, he is trying to influence either or both in the direction which he believes to be the most wise. I guess there will be people watching this who think he sounds like a terrifying warmonger who is pushing for a war with China and trying to make it happen, and there will be people very upset about that. And there will be other people on the other side who think he sounds like a peacenik regarding Ukraine or a defeatist, and there'll be people upset about that. So whichever camp you're in, thank you for tuning in. I hope you found it at least informative. This was Unheard. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, welcome to the Next Wave podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of lore.com. We want to bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're going to equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change.